we start work today on uh, the way it kind of just laid out for us here in Colossians. Um, we're going to read that whole passage again uh, as we have our context of the, uh, the household code. Speaking of in chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope. And so as the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we have hope, through the Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. Amen. Well, it is Labor Day weekend, so it does seem fitting that we should be talking about work. And as I sort of sat this week and thought a little bit about the idea of work, it dawned on me that, oh my goodness, I've been working for over 30 years. <laughs> Starting, you know, with um, shoveling people's driveways in the winter, you know. The obligatory, it seems, paper route when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, starting to work retail when I'm old enough to drive. Um, you know, just think of some of the jobs I've had and how varied they are. Bookkeeper, a cabinet factory, working in a hardware store and a hospital, a homeless shelter, all kinds of things that I've done over the years. I've had good jobs. I've had bad jobs. <laughs> Jobs that I couldn't stand and was glad to get out of them. Um, but also, I was very different in all of those different jobs. There were some that I worked well in, and there were some that I worked not so well in. Sometimes I had, well, I had different motives throughout time. Sometimes I was working just for the money. Sometimes I was working for something greater than that. And so over those 30 years, I've had a number of motives as I've engaged the work that has been placed before me. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, largely, is about for whom do we work and how we work. The big idea this morning is that we serve Christ as our true master for his glory. But before we get to the text itself, this is sort of one of those passages that a lot of us probably wish you know, we, we could take the white out to. Because, you know, it doesn't fit our cultural context. 
there have been some very good things that have happened since Paul wrote this. Um, we, we live in a world in which there is no legal slavery. Okay? Uh, slavery still exists. If you just type in human trafficking into Google or uh, whatever search engine you want to use, uh, you'll find far too many articles on that and, and what's going on in all of that these days. But I think we really have to stop just because we're Americans and because we have a particular understanding of slavery based on our experience as Americans, or at least most of us are Americans here or are familiar with our history. Um, to understand Paul's history, the, the social context and historical context to which Paul is writing these instructions. Now, these instructions are not unusual. Paul deals with uh, the household codes and includes slavery in such places as Ephesians 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 6, Titus chapter 2 that we heard from earlier. Peter brings it up in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we see connections with it in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, which you have part of as your reflection in the order of worship, as well as... uh, some other places in 1 Corinthians. Now, slavery was not particular to the Roman Empire. Slavery was a part of every major ancient civilization. Okay? We have to reckon with that reality, that it is, is a function of living in a fallen world. That in every major culture until recently... Slavery has been present in various forms. It was very prevalent in Rome. In Rome itself, the capital, one-third of the people were slaves. And so, you know, we could count off here. And and if, uh, you know, there's about 70 of us, so to speak, that would mean that 23 of you would be slaves. You would have a master And when you left this place, you would go and do his bidding, or her bidding, whatever the case may be. You might work in the field, you might work in the home, doesn't matter. You're still owned by somebody. You're not your own to do what you want. If we were just in the larger Roman Empire, the number would go to one in five. So only about, uh, what, what was it I had? Fifteen of you would be slaves. Isn't that much better? Okay. So that was a very prominent thing. Very. Uh, it's, so Paul couldn't avoid talking about this because so many people within the congregation would have been engaged in some, on some side of that equation when it comes to slavery. Now in the scriptures, uh, race-based slavery was only found in one place, and that is when the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. And we know that God judged Egypt for its wickedness in how they treated God's people in that instance. You would think that when Israel got free and got into their promised land, that there would be no such thing as slavery among them. And yet we see in places like Deuteronomy 15, as well as in Exodus, that God gives regulations that deal with this institution of slavery. It wasn't abolished, but it took on a different form. There were greater limits that were placed on it, and yet it still existed. And that's, I think, at times difficult for us to grasp. Now, there were some rules for foreign slaves. Okay, 
Now, a foreign slave would be someone that was captured in war. They didn't surrender. Okay? If they had surrendered, they just became a vassal state. And so this is someone that you conquered. It couldn't be a nearby neighbor because they, the Israelites were supposed to remove the, the nearby neighbors because of their they false gods and because of their wickedness. But the faraway neighbor, they could conquer and they could use people as slavery, as slaves to work for the king, essentially. But it wasn't just the foreigners. There could also be brother Israelites who were enslaved. And that was a temporary form of slavery. That was if someone came into utter poverty or great debt, they could sell themselves or part of their family into slavery for six years, as Deuteronomy 15 notes, in order to pay off the debt. It was, as the dollhouse mentions, for any of you who remember that show, Consensual slavery. Indentured servitude is a word that we would use that has a history uh, as people came to America. Sometimes they didn't have the money to come overseas, okay, and so they sold themselves into indentured slavery so that, so that someone else paid their way to America and that they promised to work for that person for a period of time to, to kind of pay them back for what was invested for them to leave the, the, uh, the British islands. And so that was sort of what was going on in Israel. In Rome, it was similar. The idea of foreign captives okay, were becoming slaves, sometimes gladiators, sometimes in the mines or out in the fields, but also criminals. If you were not given the death penalty, what you were given was you would be made a slave, often in the fields. Most of the most dangerous criminals would have received the death penalty, so these are the I don't know, the less dangerous folk, so to speak, the thieves, that sort of thing, they would become slaves. Some also, like in Israel, sold themselves into slavery for debt, this consensual sort of slavery. And so as a result, many slaves, contrary to our human experience, our American experience, would have been well-educated and very skilled. So they weren't just doing menial things, there would be some who were doctors, some who were accountants, some who were cooks. All sorts of jobs would be done by these slaves. The household slaves, the domestic slaves, were generally better cared for than the field slaves and the mine slaves with the brutal labor that they were doing. But still, the condition existed that they had no rights, that these people had... Um, were very vulnerable as a result, vulnerable to being exploited, oppressed, abused, without any sense of recourse. There were slave results, usually among the gladiators. Good old Spartacus was one. It's not just a movie, it was reality. Okay? But those were put down brutally by the Romans. And so essentially what you see in Paul's day you know, is nobody is questioning the institution of slavery. Now, certain people, particularly those who uh, were enslaved because of war, they questioned their own slavery, their own participation in, in um, you know, they're on the wrong side of the fence, so to speak. They'd rather be on the other side of the fence. Nobody was questioning the institution. Seneca was one of the few people who kind of said, well, you know, they're people too, so we should treat them better. That was about as, as good as it got, so to speak. 
No one was raising their voice to end this. In fact, on the flip side, you have Aristotle, the great philosopher, who wrote that some were slaves by nature, meaning that because of their disposition and their intellectual abilities and and their decision-making processes, they were better suited to be slaves than free. It's a radical thought, a dangerous thought. He also wrote in his book Politics that a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So he and Seneca would disagree on how slaves should be treated. Aristotle just basically saw them as living tools, something that suits my purpose and my need, and I'm not to have friendly relationships with them. And part of what's interesting to me as I look historically is, if you look what happened with Aristotle's writings, essentially lost for a period of time and rediscovered by the Muslims in Alexandria, Egypt. And it was the Muslims who eventually, in a sense, brought Aristotle back to life through his writings uh, at the, you know, the very beginning of the Renaissance. And that, these comments of Aristotle, are what gave birth, most likely, to race-based slavery. But it started with Islam. And then, as Aristotle's writings became popular among Christian scholars, it started to infiltrate and corrupt the church in Europe. So, that's a free history lesson for you there. Okay? Well, let's get to the text. Okay, but I thought we just need to know this as we, we approach the text so that we don't bring our Americanism to it. But we, we try to see this in, in light of the historical context. So the first part of this text really deals with that issue that, that Christ is the true master that all Christians serve. And as, we, as you read through Colossians, you should have a question when it starts to come to slavery because earlier in this letter, Paul has said, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and circumcised. There's not barbarian. There's not Scythian. And then he says, slave free. But Christ is all and in all. And so... If you've just read that, and you're in part of that equation, you're slave or free, you have to begin to wonder, what? how does that play out? What's the significance of this incredible statement that Paul just said? Does that mean that I should just run away and do what I want? Does it mean that I am no longer bound to my earthly master? It was an important question. It's a question that none of us, thankfully, have to ask. Because none of us are slaves. But, as we look at this, let us remember that we are under a similar authority. Not not an identical authority. But we're under a similar authority in the workplace and in the schools. If you go to school, this applies to you too. Okay? And so he says to them, Bondservants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. 
And so the gospel, when it comes, it gives these slaves or frees equal access to God through Jesus Christ. But what it doesn't do is obliterate the earthly authorities under which they exist. We see the same thing in marriage and in the family, and now he's applying it essentially to the workplace. Like children, they were to listen under authority. Okay, the same word is used that was spoken, that he gave when he told what children were to do. They were to obey or or listen under, under, under that authority. They're not freed from this earthly authority, and yet there's something significant here because Paul is addressing these slaves as church members. As church members who are in need of grace, as church members who are in need of direction and instruction. In other words, he's not treating them as second-class citizens without rights, which is what they were in the eyes of Rome. So he treats them as people, as part of the household of God, and yet he gives them instruction that maybe they weren't excited about. They were to listen under in everything. That's hard for us to hear, isn't it? Because it means that even when you disagree with what your master says, or in our context, with what your teacher or what your employer says, even though you disagree with them, you don't go off and do your own thing. You continue to listen under their authority and fulfill their directions to you. I've been there. I know how hard that is. I remember two different contexts. My first real paid job working at Montgomery Wards. And one day the store manager wanted a mountain of diapers to be erected. We had far too many diapers in inventory. And so some poor schlub was given the task to build the mountain of diapers. And guess who that poor schlub was? (laughs) And I did not respond well. I built it in anger. Years later, here I am, transitioning you know, between churches, doing jobs that I didn't exactly like. And one of them, I worked for friends, okay? And I was given the task of doing inventory, which is actually pretty good because it, for a couple days it kept me off of the floor where I was exposed to questions I had no answer to. So that was great, Okay. But the way they wanted me to do the inventory was not a way that I thought the inventory should be done. I thought that there was probably a better, wiser, more efficient way to do the inventory. And so I have this question. Which way am I going to do it? Am I going to do it my way? Or am I going to recognize the authority of my friends over me because they're my boss and do it their way? Thankfully, I'd matured a little, okay? And then we didn't have to have any difficult conversations, okay, in their office because I was being rebellious. So Peter also says this in chapter 2, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so what Peter is saying and what Paul says elsewhere is it doesn't matter how good or how bad your boss is, You're still under their authority, and you're still to be subject to them, to obey them. Now remember, the original audience here had no recourse. They couldn't go to their union rep. 
say, hey, you know, my boss is giving me a hard time. He's being unreasonable. You know, they, they couldn't be a whistleblower in the event of uh, maybe some unethical dealings that were taking place. They couldn't call ABC News and say, I got a story for you. They couldn't quit like we can do. They were stuck. Now, there's an exception that Paul doesn't spell out, but it's within the greater context of Scripture. And that exception would be, is, it would be if they're commanded to sin. And Paul sort of addresses, uh, sorry, Peter sort of addresses that in the second chapter of his first letter. When he talks about suffering unjustly. So essentially what the Christian uh, who found himself as a slave was to do at that point in time, if they're commanded to do something that was immoral against God's law, is they were to refuse but recognize that they could be punished for it. That their boss or their master may not say, by golly, you're right. I had one of those moments. Not as a slave, obviously. But going to... This, basically the CEO of a company who was getting ready to retire and was not paying the bills on time so that there was more money in the checking account when he retired. And I went to him and I was like, we're Christians, we're supposed to pay our debts, we're not supposed to you know, play these little games. We owe this money, we should pay it in the proper amount of time. That conversation didn't go well. <laughs> I was young. It didn't go well. But there are times when we do need to say, I can't do that. That's wrong. But be willing to accept any punishment that they might decide to mete out, even though it is unjust. He says it's better that you suffer unjustly than if you suffer as a thief or a murderer. And so here, Paul now moves to this great gospel shift. shift. You are serving the Lord Christ. Essentially, he's saying, the boss you see is not the real boss. He may be your supervisor, so to speak, but your ultimate boss, the boss behind the boss, is Jesus himself. He's the one you're really serving. You have been set free from these lower powers and brought into the service of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul, when he speaks about himself, he often says that he is a slave of Christ. He's, in a sense, like that person in Deuteronomy 15 who says, I don't want to go free, and they take the all and they... they with the piercing in the ear and a slave for life to that particular master, Paul is essentially saying, I am a slave for life to Jesus Christ. And you are too if you're in Christ. And so don't get caught up on the earthly master thing. This is where in the providence of God you, you are right now. Recognize who you really serve. And let that shape how you serve. And so it's by faith that we trust in Christ even as we deal with our boss's sin and injustice. 
It's not our job to sort of fix our boss's problems. I had another one of those uncomfortable conversations. I thought my boss was being unjust. I got fired. Not for the original incident, but my, my direct superior one day came to me and said, man, I don't know what you did, Steve, to tick this guy off, but every time your name comes up, all he says is bad things about you. He says, whatever you do, try to make this thing right. <laughs> you know, I, and I tried to make things right, and it didn't happen. The next day, I'm called into the office, and, well, you know, we're making some changes, and one of the changes is we don't think you fit here anymore. Goodbye. And, you know, I had to trust God to deal with that guy. And God did deal with that guy in his own way, in his own time. Sometimes we just have to wait for God to deal with these things. And so Christ... The master that we really serve at work or home or school uses earthly masters or supervisors. Secondly, Christ cares about the character of our service. He's not as concerned about where we do our service, but the character of how we serve. The gospel changes not just for whom we work, but it also changes us as workers. In other words, we are no longer the old man in Adam. We are now the new man in Christ. And so we're to stop acting or working like the old man in Adam and start working like the new man in Christ. And so he talks about that. He says, not as those who do eye service, as people pleasers. Now, most of us know these people, don't we? But the question is, are we those people? Are we those who, who work giving eye service? In other words, can your boss trust you to do your job when he's not looking? Okay, So one aspect of eye service is the person who only works when the boss is present or somehow checking up on them. This is a lack of self-discipline, a lack of self-motivation. Back at Montgomery Ward, where I started my paid career, one of my friends would call me the milkman. Because from his perspective, or his joke was, I was milking it at work, which was kind of funny. I think it was psychological projection. <laughs> because what I would do is I would do all my work as fast as I could and then relax because my work is done. He was the guy that was sort of spreading it out over the whole length of time of his shift and then maybe <laughs> getting it done. <laughs> there are people like that. We've all encountered them. Hopefully we're not them. But there's also another type of person that people pleaser. Some people only work to please their boss, to get ahead, to gain their favor. This really is a very self-centered way of working. It's sort of like, particularly in baseball, you hear this all the time. He's in his contract year. Okay, what that means is is at the end of this year, he's going to be a free agent, and he 
wants to make as much money as possible. And so he usually, a lot of guys will have a really, really good year. You know, they want to please their future boss and make a lot of money. And then sometimes when they get that big paycheck, guess what happens? They ain't so good anymore. (laughs) They still have the skills, but they now lack the motivation and the effort. It happens. Paul kind of addresses this in some sense in Philippians 2, before he talks, uh, no, sorry, after he talks about Jesus, who became a slave for us and for our salvation. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. There's another way to, 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 to work according to the old man, and that's like I was that day trying to build that mountain of diapers. The old man, grumbling, arguing, complaining, ugly. Instead, Paul says, there should be sincerity of heart. That that has to do with singleness of purpose. In other words, not the mixed motives. Not, well, you know, I'm doing this so I can look good, so I can make money. I'm doing this so that... Um, I can have a nice house. I'm doing this, so uh, I'm not unemployed. Uh, you know, all of those things. And oh yeah, by the way, you know, I love Jesus a little. Okay. One thing: serving Jesus. The other stuff will fall out where it may. That that that's what Paul has that that idea of sincerity of heart. And he says this, that sincerity of heart, in a sense, is connected to this idea of fearing the Lord. We're not going to have that sincerity of heart unless we are experiencing and acting out of reverence for Christ. In other words, this, this desire to please and honor Him. As long as we're enslaved by fear to men, we're not going to have the sincerity of heart that comes by fearing God. Reverencing Him and what we do. Since we serve Christ, our work is, ought to be shaped by that godly fear, not that fear of man. Okay, And really, the only way to sort of deal with a lot of this stuff is prayer. Praying. Help me today to serve you, to fear you, to not fear men, my boss... In a sense, this is this has got to be a part of our our daily ritual before we go to work, so to speak, to remember these things and pray for God's assistance to enable us to do these things. You see, you know, pastors aren't exempt from this. Every Sunday morning, I could live to please you or please Him. Every Sunday morning, I have that temptation. To please you instead of him. Just like you have that temptation when you go to work or you go to school. Do you want an A because you're, you want to go to an Ivy League school? Do you want an A because you might get money from your parents? Or do you get an A because you love Jesus and want to use your abilities as best you can? 
And that might mean for you getting a C, <laughs> depending on the subject matter. Anyway, not only that, sincerity of heart, because we fear the Lord, but then he says, working heartily, or literally, out of the soul, from the inmost being. There's an earnestness that is engaged here, not just a passing of time in order to kind of get a paycheck. Okay, you know, I've got to put in my hours so I can get my paycheck. Okay, and this is why John Murray, the uh, Westminster Seminary theologian, wrote, The notion of obedience implies voluntary, hearty, and cheerful performance of the Master's will. We may speak of involuntary service, but not of involuntary obedience. They can't make you obey. They can punish you for not obeying. Okay? You, you may have involuntary service, but there's no such thing, he says, as involuntary obedience. And so the character of our service was very important. You know, as, as slaves, their work could be backbreaking or it could be boring. It could be uninteresting. But I know this it wasn't paid. We struggle with our tasks too. And we need to make that shift from uh, what, what you do to for whom you do it. And this is a very imperfect analogy, but when I was working at Ace Hardware, don't tell my bosses this, but I was not excited about my job. <laughs> I was not well suited for that job. And basically the reason I kept doing that job was that I saw three faces in front of me every day. Amy, Jaden, Eli. I did it for them and for God. I saw that as my responsibility to serve him was to provide for my family as best as I can. And at that moment, that was as best as I could do. That's the mindset we have to have. Not for me, but for him. I will engage in this, even though it's not precisely what I'd like to be doing at this particular point in time. 1 Timothy 6 and Titus 2 also mention that we should work to adorn or bring honor to Christ and the gospel. 1 Timothy 6 says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. If, if, the, if God's people bring about social chaos, it brings dishonor and reviling to the gospel and to Jesus. In Titus 2, which Marty already read, again, that not arguing, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so how you work whether you want it to be so or not, will reflect upon Jesus Christ because somebody there is going to know that you're a Christian and they're going to think something of Jesus Christ by how you work or don't work, as the case may be. So how we work matters greatly in terms of bringing glory to Christ. And so let us work like the new man in Christ to bring glory to Christ Third thing, this is much shorter than the other three things. 
faithful service to Christ finds a reward. Now, as a servant, you, you had no reward, except maybe the possible hope that when your master dies, he will set you free. Okay? You didn't get paid. Maybe you would be lucky like Joseph, way back in Genesis. He kept getting promoted, more and more responsibility, but you know he was never set free. Okay? His life, in a sense, got better, but he was still a slave. Even in the house of Pharaoh, a slave. Paul offers a promise to them that Christ would give them the inheritance as your reward. They had something to look forward to. The inheritance of all Christians. They have an equal part in that inheritance. Okay, they weren't going to get shafted as if they were slaves. They're going to get an equal share in Christ's inheritance. And that they are to think of as their reward. Jesus will reward good service. But as it also says here, that he is going to... The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. And so in a sense, it's going to cut both ways. But let us remember that good service does not earn salvation. That's not what Paul's talking about. They've already been united to Christ and brought into this great salvation, you know, and, and now they work. And they work knowing that Christ will give them their share of the inheritance. But how we serve can bring us as well honor or disgrace. See, grace will prompt a response. In us. And grace will provide the power to change how we work. There's the old story told about two men laying bricks. I'm sure you've heard this. And they are asked, What are you doing? The first man says, I'm laying bricks. Second man is asked, What are you doing? I'm building a cathedral. One man just saw the task, another man saw the goal. And as Christians, let's look not just at the task, but also the goal. I'm serving Jesus and bringing him glory. And thankfully, he's going to say at, one, at some point, hopefully, well done, my good and faithful servant. The wording that Paul uses here at the, the very end of chapter 3 is very similar to the wording that we find in 1 Corinthians 4 when he talks about how everybody's work is going to be examined. And some will be burned as if wood, and some will remain as if made by precious gold and silver, stone. Same context. There's a great evaluation that's going to take place. That this that our work is going to be evaluated for its quality without partiality. It's not like, perhaps in the context of Colossians, well, you're a free person, so you get a pass. You're a slave, you don't. That kind of no partiality. The same standard will be used whether you're Greek or Jew, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, whatever. In a sense, it's almost like the exit interview. Because you're not going to be fired. You're in by grace. But you get to hear 
how you've done. And hopefully that's encouraging. And so this is a fitting text for Labor Day, addressing why we work, how we are to work. And the gospel expands our vision so that we see that we're really working for Christ because we've already been accepted by him. We're not trying to gain it by our work. So it's gospel-oriented. Knowing that we are serving him who died for us in our work should change how we work so that we're not working to gain approval, but as an expression of our love and gratitude for that great salvation he's given us freely. And and so we, we seek to bring him glory in how we work, And we we remember here that our work is not unprofitable. There will be a great gift at the end. We will enjoy the inheritance as our reward. So part of what we ought to see here is that Jesus honors those who glorify him by his grace. And so the gospel matters for work. And next week, we're going to talk about people on the other side of that equation. Those who are in authority in the workplace. Let's pray. Father, not easy for us, uh, in a sense, to hear these words. We come with baggage. It's easy for us to kind of shut down in in light of these words and not hear them for what they are. But I ask that your spirit would be at work as we leave this place and as we continue to ponder your words that, that you would be at work in us, helping us to see what you'd like to change, helping us to see the greatness of your freedom given to us in Jesus Christ and how best to express that freedom. So continue to work by your spirit in the hours that come. In Jesus' name, amen.